Hey everyone, Military Historians of People 2 wants to push two important things with our listeners. First, we don't get any compensation from the University Press of Kansas. The wonderful folks out there in Lawrence kindly promote our podcast on their social media feeds, and we're really grateful for that. In return, we encourage you to check out the University Press of Kansas and its great list, including many military history titles and series such as Modern War Studies, which I am honored to serve as series editor. But we don't want to just push the University Press of Kansas. Brian and I encourage you to check out the amazing books and journals offered by the University Press community. Whether it's North Carolina, Texas A&M, Cornell, NYU, Cambridge, Oxford, whatever, visit their websites, check out the wonderful scholarship these and other presses produce each year. If you see something you like, if you can buy it directly from the press website, all the better. And in that same vein, as a non-monetized podcast, we rely on our listeners to help us get the word out about military historians or people too. So please retweet, repost, share on all your social media feeds, our podcast and pods like Bowen Blade, Kaki Malarkey, ThePeel.News, and any others that you listen to. You are such an important part of all of us reaching our listeners. So thank you for your support. Please share us, keep listening, and enjoy today's show. Following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians or People Too. Spartanburg. Good. Uh, as you can see, I went and got a haircut today. I, I did notice that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I told them, I said, my, my dear friend and colleague, Brian Feltman, when I asked him about where he gets his haircut, he says, Bill, I did not get my haircut. I have my hair sculpted. That's true. And, <laughs> and Dina was like, I know exactly what you want. And just, yeah, I'd let it go. I mean, I, I hadn't had a haircut in like two months. So oh, I- I religiously go once once a month. Um, when I leave, I go ahead and make the appointment for the next month. Yeah, that's I do too. I, in fact, she she's like, look, if you want to keep it like this, we're going to have to do this every two weeks. Yeah, that's I. Yeah. I Carrie doesn't Which like it as scalped as as I do. I like it like down to the skin on the side. And yeah, uh, yeah. wife doesn't like that. So uh, you know. Yeah. Have to Speaking of, um, have you uh, taken care of your Valentine's Day uh, preparations? No, I haven't. Have you? I did that this morning as well. Been very productive. What do you um, have going on? Oh well, it's a, a lovely card and a box of chocolates. That's nice. that's the accepted that's norm standard. in our house okay. and all of that. So we usually don't do much with it. It's not a thing, you know. Yeah, we don't so, either. Um, but but on, COVID, on the other hand, it's you know nice to have a little something. So, so. Bef- before COVID. Um, which seems forever ago now. Right. Um, right. So it would have been Valentine's day, literally right before COVID. Um, she, Carrie told me, you know, we're going out to dinner, um, you know, dress casual, but this is a really big thing. Uh, so I had no idea where we're going and, um, waffle house does a Valentine's dinner special. 
Awesome. So yeah, so uh, it took me, 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 Carrie, and Maxine, and uh, we all went to Waffle House, and they they put like a pink tablecloth out, and uh, the whole nine yards. I oh, how I got fun! A, I, got, I got a Waffle House steak. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which hey, you know what? Pretty there good. Are a few few places in the world that can do a steak on a flat top like a Waffle House. That's uh, true. <laughs> no, that that's I'll I'll give you that. I will give you that for sure. Um, yeah, every once in a while, I'm tempted to swing by that one over by Bites, you know, on the, on the loop in Statesboro yeah, yeah. in the morning. Because, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, I'm up early and it's like seven o'clock and I'm like, right. you know, one day I'm going to just go to Waffle House and get the well, day off. Know, right. Give me give me a call one morning. I'll go with you. That sounds like a plan, man. I, we, I'm, we I'm a fan of the Waffle House. Yeah, let's make let's make it a date. Yeah, uh, I am really in, intrigued by our guest today. I. I don't know her, but you know her, right? You know, I, I do know her. Uh, um, I met her a couple years ago at a conference in Leeds. Uh, I'd seen yeah. her at conferences a couple times before that, and I know her work. Um, right. And uh, she is a, a true force. I mean, she you're going to see she has personality to spare. Um, she uh, she definitely she is the center of attention in a room um, whenever, uh, whenever you're yeah. at a conference. Um, well, okay. She, if that's the case, then she has a high bar because, you know, who we talked with yesterday, Stu Mitchell. Yeah. He, he set a pretty <laughs> high bar for enthusiasm and yeah. right, personality and, and, and all that. So. And I think it's going to be a little different than that. I mean, she, um, she's just, she's very impressive. Uh, she knows yeah. what she's talking about and she's, she's done a lot. And um you know, she's a, a first for us because, uh, as you're about to see with the intro, she's an independent scholar. Right. Shall I? Shall I do the? Yes, please. The norms. Um, yes. So today we are talking to Vanda Wilcox. Um, Doctor Vanda Wilcox is an independent scholar who makes her home in Milan, Italy, uh, and I'm going to have to double check that with her because she moves around quite a bit. Um, she received her bachelor's, master's, and uh, doctoral degrees from the University of Oxford. And after finishing up her PhD there, she held a two-year junior research fellowship at Oxford as well. Uh, Vanda moved to Rome in 2008, and while she was in Rome, she uh, was an adjunct at John Cabot University. She spent the next 12 years in Rome uh, before wow. relocating to Paris. Wow. Uh, and once she got as, to Paris, as one does, as, as one, one does. does, right? I as mean, you, you got to hit yeah. all the major cities, right? Um, once she got to Paris, she taught for NYU and the Council for International Education. Um, and this is one of the things she's kind of carved out for herself. It looks like she does a lot of teaching for American universities abroad. So when they right. send their study abroad kids away, uh, and I would say that those kids are getting a great deal to have her uh, doing that kind of, of stuff. Vanda is the author of The Italian Empire and the Great War, which was released with uh, Oxford uh, in 2021, late in 2021. And so this is, uh, is still a fresh. very fresh book. Yeah, uh, She had also done Morale and the Italian Army during the First World War. Uh, Cambridge published that one in 2016. And she's the editor of Italy in the Era of the Great War, and that volume came out in 2018. And on top of that, she's written more than a dozen refereed articles and essays, and, um, and she's, she's pretty young. She's younger than I am, um, so I'm giving myself a compliment A there. babe in the woods, um, babe <laughs> in the woods. 
So uh, she has presented her research all over Europe and the United States. She's spoken at the um, out in, in Kansas City uh, at the National World War I um, Museum there. She's heavily involved in a lot of professional organizations, including the International Society for First World War Studies. Um, and I'll pause there to say that she really has done just about everything. She uh, has been on the editorial board. She's she's organized conferences, uh, and, and she is just a, a really important figure in that association. Uh, she's also a member of the Society for Military History, and uh, she does a lot with the Association for the Study of Modern Italy. She's a sewist, she is a baker, and she is a gamer. And um, we'll, we're going to hopefully get a chance to talk to her about some of those things today. A.S. Roma, right? A.S. Roma, that's her, wow. uh, that's her team. And okay. you know, one of the things I want to find out is, you know, is there some family connection to Italy or, uh, you know, how does, how does a, a woman from, from the UK get obsessed with A.S. Roma? Yeah, that's got to be, makes for some awkward visits back home to the UK. <laughs> awkward dinners, right? Yeah, I, I for think. sure. For I don't sure. know. Well, I look forward to this. This will be fun. Yeah, it will be a good time. Rob Satino is at like 192, and Heather is at 196. Okay. Oh, plays. competition. Yeah, <laughs> we, we might have to tweet something out to push them, see who can get pushed over 200, yeah. 200 plays, right, on the first time. But um, it's we're nice having do, fun. It's nice to do something that can build community a bit among military historians, because I think it's a thing that maybe we've lacked a bit. Yeah. Compared right. to some fields, perhaps. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Well, what I've enjoyed, you know, so far, a lot of the people, there's been a few people that neither one of us knew, but, but most, most of it, it, at least one of us knows the person. And so it's been, I think, really fun and rewarding for the other to meet this person and you cool. know, make, make that connection and learn about them and everything. So uh, yeah, it's fun. I mean, we're, we're really having a good time with it. And, yeah. and I love Brian dearly and, so I, I enjoy doing this with him. So it's it's been fun. But we're okay. really glad to have you um, today. This is cool. Yeah, we, I mean, yeah, and uh, two days in a row we're across the pond. I know. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah we talked to Stuart Mitchell yesterday. Oh right, and oh, he's another cat man. Y yes. Yes, he yeah, is. So, <laughs> yeah. So well, you're a cat person too. I am very much a cat person. Oh gosh. My gosh. cat will probably <laughs> come and, and interrupt proceedings at what, any moment. What has our podcast become, Bill? We we now have cat people <laughs> I, here. You on know, I tweet, I tweeted a warning. I tweeted out a warning earlier today that there was going to be two cat cat personages in a row. And, oh wow! Um, you know that that was really going to it was going to challenge our you know the the, the workshops dog based dog based yeah. listenership. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, you know, we got, we, our coping mechanisms are going to have to kick in today. So that we, can. yeah, we just want to start out by talking about your background. Um, you know, tell us where you're from. What did your parents do? And uh, how did you get into history? I grew up in Manchester. It's okay. kind of weird even saying that because I haven't been back there for such an incredibly long time. It's the home of the Industrial Revolution. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So going to school, all our school trips were like to visit Industrial Revolution sites and not coincidentally i knew nothing at all to do with industrial revolution history uh, it was not a, it was not an encouraging um experience from that point of view uh where i'm super lucky and i i think this is maybe a bit unusual is that my mum uh adores military history oh. 
And how, how, how is that? Why, why, why is that? Well, her story is, and I don't know, I can't vouch for this, you know, the way stories get handed down, but her story is that she, uh, when she was about 11, maybe, uh, went to her local public library and she picked up Gone with the Wind and she loved it. And she got back to the library and she said to the librarians, I loved this, I want more. And they said, oh, we can find you more romance. And she went, no, not yeah. more romance, more books about the American Civil War. Um, and so they started getting in all these books about the US Civil War for her. Um, and she didn't uh, read history at university. She actually read Italian, which is how I ended up kind of having the okay. Italian connection because she met and married an Italian through that. Um, but she loved history and history of warfare. Um, and then from a child, she took us visiting battlefields. So we visited the, the Normandy landing beaches. We visited the battlefields of the First World War. We uh, went to the Falaise Gap and she taught us about uh, William the Conqueror. And uh, I was just raised seeing battlefield visits as a kind of key part of the holidays. Is your mom still? That's amazing. She is. She's very much still with us. She's she's follows. She'll listen to this later. She listens say, to my podcasts can, you know, and gives please, me feedback. Please give her a shout out. Way to go, mom. Um, yeah, no job. kidding. I, man, yeah. I love it. I mean, people don't give books about the history of war to small girls, and they certainly didn't back in the 60s. Right. Right. Um, so if you if you met it somewhere, you met it kind of accidentally. Right. These so you grew up speaking Italian then? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, as a sort of very much secondary language, but yes, I got speaking Italian, spending my uh, a lot of holidays in Italy, visiting grandparents and so on, okay. which meant that when it came to kind of choosing a topic, uh, the Italian angle was there. It wasn't actually what I originally wanted to do, but my supervisor pushed me as soon as I kind of accidentally mentioned that I spoke Italian. He said, oh, you have to go and do an Italian topic. We desperately need people to work on Italy. And and so that was that really. Well, that's 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 going to be one of the questions that we have for you. Um, so just out of curiosity, um, last time I was in Manchester, I noticed that people were getting these little uh, worker bee tattoos everywhere. Um, did you uh, did you fall into that trend and get yourself a worker bee? No, I, I no longer have any connection with Manchester. I haven't been back for probably more than 25 years. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess so, I've been uh, there more recently than you have. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's probably changed a bit in, the, in that time. Um, was, so so yeah, military history just, it was a thing I grew up um, being given to read, I guess, in a way that lots of other of my peers were not necessarily being given. And so when you went to university, did you start off in history? Uh, yes. So I went up to Oxford to read history in 1997, about a week after my 18th birthday. And um, I got there and in our kind of initial meeting, they said, what type of history do you like to everybody? And everyone was like, oh, I don't know, history of the medieval monasteries or whatever. I don't know I said I'm interested in military history and they all stared at me like I was a freak and they went well we don't really do that here <laughs> I was like oh okay um and then actually uh Adrian Gregory who became eventually my supervisor arrived more or less at the same time as me or maybe the year after me so that by the time I was in my final year of undergrad I could take his first world war further subject but there was not a huge amount of military history uh, at Oxford in that time period, it has to be said. Um, and I think that's changed a lot because they've had more energetic people there basically in the field since that time. But there was certainly a sense in 97 that it was a bit weird and kind of unnatural. Yeah, that, 
and and that's you know I think I'm I'm slightly older than you, but I we're we're roughly the same age. I'm 44, and and I do I think you're right. I mean, it seems like that was a period where maybe there just wasn't as much. I don't remember when I was at university like there being a tremendous amount of military history being done. No, you, I mean, you were in it by then, Bill. So you have a better idea of what it was like. Yeah, it in the it, US. it it wasn't. It, it uh, you know I started out in diplomatic history actually, and kind of right. you know morphed over, you know, a little later, but it, it was, it was a, it was a very low trough, you know, mm. the, the, all these, all fields are cyclical, but, um, you know, in the nineties, especially even in the early two thousands, I think it, it was still kind of, you know, looked down upon a little bit, but that's changed dramatically all over the place. Um, and it's yeah. not just a centenary, which, you know, had, which, which was great for military history you know, the way that the, the field was moving to more social war and society type while still honoring that operational foundation, you know, I, I think, you know, now we're in a great spot. So yeah. yeah, I would agree. Or better than we have been in the last 25 or 30 years, that's for sure. So you, you did all your degrees at Oxford. Um, and we did an intro for you, by the way, where I talk about oh, all cool. your, all your stuff. Um, we pre-record that, but, uh, you did all your degrees at Oxford, stayed on for a two-year fellowship. Um, yes. and, uh, and then you, you headed out, you found yourself pretty much on the continent ever since, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, basically during the PhD, um, all the archives I used pretty much were in Rome. And I loved it. And it was just amazing. And then the two-year fellowship I got was a very strange thing where um, uh, to qualify, your research had to be involved in uh, a modern foreign language. And they wanted you to go away for a lot of the time. So like six, at least six months of the year or something like that, you had to be away in your foreign country and then the rest of the time back in Oxford. So it's like they pay you to go away, which is kind of cool. So I went back to Rome. I spent another couple of years in Rome. Now I thought, okay, I should probably be, you know, applying for jobs in the UK. And I did start to apply for jobs in the UK, um, but maybe not super enthusiastically. Um, and um, I'm going to confess the, 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 the truth of this, which is that I got myself a season ticket at AS Roma and I really didn't want to go back to the UK. Um, <laughs> okay, all is revealed. All is all revealed. revealed. All she, is was, she was offered a position at Cambridge, but she yes, but because I was a season ticket holder at AS Roma. So how? Okay, let's cut. How how does the AS Roma thing? How does that happen? Well, um, I love football, and when I was you know young and free and in my twenties, wherever I went, I'd go and watch a football game. That's soccer to you, and um, where the we, first we time are, I... we are enlightened enough to to, to call yeah, it we, football. We appreciate. No, we, we <laughs> it's appreciate. okay. It's okay. I have my Forest Green Rovers uh, scarf right over here, hanging okay. on the wall. So okay. So uh, the very very first time I ever went to Rome, I was there for two weeks to like see what was in the libraries. It's a sort of a preliminary research visit, and I wanted to go and see a game. And obviously, the reputation of Lazio was of being full of neo-fascists so I didn't want to go there so I went to see Roma and I had no idea what was going on in terms of the the fans it was madness there was some mad display with flags and stuff going on I couldn't understand a word of it there were singing these songs that I couldn't understand it was in Roman dialect the whole thing was completely crazy and I fell totally in love with it and I was like I want this I've no idea what it is but I want in this is so great that is then later I discovered that Roma also has loads of neo-fascists, but that's a whole other story. 
And growing up, you know, I mean, you've got Manchester City and Manchester United right there where you're no, from. No, no, and never, Arsenal. never, no, nothing Arsenal. ever appeared. Okay, wow. I'm an Arsenal fan in the UK. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I obviously am a sucker for kind of suffering and underachieving, frustrating dreams that make you want to tear your hair out. Yeah. Okay, so I have okay. I have a practical question then. So how are you working this now that you're in Milan, right? Or well, what, what do you I do? mean, it's it's been a long time since I had a, the season ticket. Moving okay. abroad and also having a child are not very season ticket um, compatible activities. Um, but no, I mean, uh, we're still we're still working on that. But I See, mean, I, they come I was, here. It's I was been a assuming. While. I was assuming you were a total fanatic and still had the season tickets and were leaving the kid at home and going to go to the games. <laughs> but you go see AC Milan, right? You could sneak off and do that. I mean, I could. I mean, yeah. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be disloyal or anything. You're just, no, no. You're just, I mean, you're just I, scratching been, the itch, right? I've been to see them. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's just a logistical issue is right. that my husband's a sports journalist. And so he's always working when the game's on. And then... The six-year-old will be ready to go, I think, in the spring, maybe, but not in the winter. You can't take has, her to an Has evening. the six-year-old already been kitted out uh, with she, appropriate attire? She knows she's a Roma fan. Excellent. She likes okay. to upset her dad by saying she's an Arsenal fan too, but that's... <laughs> so <laughs> He's he's Chelsea, so it's a very unfortunate Oh, he's posh. Oh, posh. Yeah, 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 yeah it's bad. Yeah. So with him being a journalist, do you get to go to, like, really cool events? Um and like sit in, you know, places that normal people don't get to sit? Kind of, I guess. But sports journalism is not particularly cool, really. Okay. You know, the truth oh. of the matter is. <laughs> it's a slog. Um, yeah, I've always understood it's a slog, actually. Yeah, and he's yeah. a wire journalist. So he's there like furiously typing and you've got to file your copy on the final whistle and get it out. And it's all like. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah. So he's that guy that when like I, I check scores on ESPN and you click on the thing, it has the quick breakdown of what happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so he's the guy that when someone scores a goal, like in the 95th minute is swearing furiously at the TV or the players go, I can't believe I've got to rewrite this whole thing. You know. <laughs> like those last minute exciting things that fans love sports journalists hate them because they were ready to file their piece. And now they've got to rewrite the whole thing. Okay, one wow. more thing, and we can get back to, to your history. <laughs> We've strayed a bit off topic. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Right. This is hey, this is what we do. We we yeah. just go where we want to go, and because Brian and I, we were interested in a lot of things, uh, just not so much cats. Um, <laughs> we uh, so so does he get to do any like F one or anything like that, or is it just oh yeah, mostly yeah. Any sport that happens on Italian soil. Oh God! So he gets wow. to go to. I mean. Yeah, and MotoGP as well, rugby, um, even winter sports, skiing, cycling, whatever. Your daughter's going to have a really cool childhood. (laughs) I hope so. I I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the the history stuff is cool enough, but then, you know, getting to to occasionally go to those events and stuff, that's going to be that's going to be pretty crazy. Okay, last thing. Should Italy be relegated from Six Nations? I mean, (sighs) pretty sad. It's, they should have really not been let in, to be honest. I, yeah. It's just embarrassing. And I, hate I feel it for, for them. them. Yeah, I like to be constantly playing people who are so much better than you. It must be really depressing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, huh. Okay. Well, speaking of being relegated, Italy, um, 
how does how do you like that segue, man? No, I was gonna say that was pretty impressive. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> so in in the in the scope of World War One, memory, narrative, history, all of that stuff, you know, we, we say, you know, Britain, France, Germany, Russia, uh, every once in a while someone will remember that the United States was in it. And and then 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 someone will say, Well, what about Italy? And we'll say, <laughs> Well, what about Italy? Uh, what are you talking about? So what what's the deal with that? What, what, I mean, Italy has an incredible World War I experience. I mean, it's very, yeah. you know, it's pretty traumatic in, in you know, part of the, the national na- the narrative there. And why, why is that? It's a good question. When I started out, people were often really confused. I'd say, oh, I'm working on the First World War in Italy. And one person did actually say to me, I think you mean the Second World War. I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I know which war it is. So this guy was really adamant. No, no, Italy was in the Second World War. You're getting confused. I was like, okay, well, thank you. Um, Could there be a more like sexist thing, right? I mean, it was (laughs) the guy telling you, no, you're you're confused. Yeah. Well, great, marvelous. Women get confused very easily, and we all know that, right? Yeah. So it's um certainly when I when I started working on the topic it was something that there was almost nothing about in English. And um, to an almost, to quite a daunting extent, there was just nothing. The one book, the first book I found in English about the Italian experience of the First World War was um, by Cyril Falls. And so he was, you know, former professor of the history of war at Oxford, big shot, very important British military historian. So I picked this up and the introduction said, I don't read Italian, so I haven't used any Italian sources at all in writing this book. Oh, wow. Hmm. Ah, the good old days. The good Good old days. (laughs) But then it got worse. He said a friend of mine who does read Italian looked at the sources and told me they weren't very interesting. Oh, gosh. So I was like, wow, this is the standard of English language scholarship about Italy in the First World War. Um, I'm very happy to say that that was 20 years ago. Since then, things have really changed a lot. And I'm not the only person working on it in English anymore, which yeah. it, it did feel like a bit at the, at the start. Um, so that's uh, that's nice. But in terms of popular perceptions, yeah, there's definitely a big lag. There is definitely a kind of afterthought, uh, you know, that Italy doesn't feature in the countries that people have traditionally thought of when it came to the First World War. I think... Um, one thing which I think has helped, um, at least briefly, uh, was when Italy appeared in Battlefield One. I started having undergrad students who were like, oh, yeah, we've played the, in Battlefield One, we've played in the Italian theatre. We know about that, you know. Okay. Um, but at a, at a popular level, there's still this kind of void where, where Italy ought it, to it, be. Really. You know, I always think it's um, the people's obsession with Germany during the First World War, you know, you can link that to Hitler, you can link that to Nazism. And but you've got a lot of the same stuff in Italy, right? I mean, you know, the First World War leads directly into fascism and Mussolini. And, you know, it's amazing that, you know, you've got very similar things going on there. But uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, it just hasn't had the same kind of uh, gravitas. Um, I don't know. I think fits with a consistent underestimation of Italian fascism. The idea that Mussolini is kind of funny, that he's like the comic version of Hitler and that Hitler is genuinely bad and scary and Mussolini is faintly laughable, that Italian fascism is, you know, not somehow inherently that serious. Um, Some of it, I think, 
even dates back to the period and there's a an idea of you know italians as as i don't know comic opera figures basically that yeah. italians are fundamentally unserious people and that what happens in italy must be fundamentally not that important um which is uh, i mean partly kind of a racial stereotype even from the late 19th century um and then of course the perception of Italy as constantly changing sides hasn't helped that either. You know, the right. idea that Italy joins wars late or it changes sides or, you know, all that stuff. Uh, it kind of is this big ball of stereotypes all um, wrapped in together. Yeah, I, uh, I use a cartoon in one of my classes and it's uh, looking at the alliance between Germany, Aust Germany, Austria, Hungary and Italy. And it's got Germany and Austria standing there as male figures, you know, with a toast and then as a little short Italian guy jumping up, trying to to be part of it. And, you know, that, it, you know, I think there's a lot to that. You're right that they people, you know, do look at at Italy as being this kind of uh, comedic um, kind of uh, represent. I don't know. Yeah, that's it's a, I'm going to do more with Italy in my class next semester, I promise. <laughs> so Bond, does it does Italy then you know like you know with the Australians it's Gallipoli with you know the Canadians Vimy Ridge right the British the Somme or Ypres whatever you know for is there still in kind of the Italian memory narrative you know Caporetto or whatever is that still is, is that um, prominent or is it yeah to some extent so the Italians haven't had a great tradition of being proud of their own military heritage right right uh for a number of reasons one is uh to do with the fact they haven't got you know glorious triumphs or as many glorious triumphs the fact that fascism appropriated the memory of the first world war so successfully meant that after the fall of fascism a lot of people kind of felt that to be anti-fascist or to reject fascism they also had to kind of ditch the memory of the first world war and it took a long time to kind of recover any sense of of being able to talk about the First World War separately from fascism, which obviously in the years after the fall of the regime was a big problem in this country. Um, so there's there's a lot less, traditionally there's been a lot less of that kind of um, heroic popular memory. But Caporetto is, um, is literally part of the Italian language. It becomes a slang word that they use. Actually, to go back to football, they use it in a sports context, like a, a totally an humiliating annihilation. Sometimes you'll see this in a, in a newspaper headline. They'll say, you know, Caporetto for whoever they lose 7-0. Oh, yeah. oh, how interesting. That's fascinating. Um, and it means a humiliating defeat, but also one that's a bit gutless, a bit where you've kind of rolled over and not really fought um the in the 70s the uh filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini who was a, a a Roman poet and, and filmmaker he uses the word caporetto to mean running away it's like one gang uh, attacks another gang in the street and they make like caporetto right so it, it, it kind of it enters into the slang uh in that way so it is it is still a presence um but unlike something like Gallipoli Gallipoli for the Australians is, is kind of valorized as a heroic sacrifice that, that they kind yeah, of it certifies their, 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 their status as a nation, right? Right. I mean, they've, been, they've been blooded, they've gone through that, right. that experience. And it's not a humiliation, okay? It's a defeat, but it's like a, a moment of sacrifice that proves their worth. 
it's really much harder to find something like that out of Caporetto. There's an effort to kind of put it in this paradigm of like defeat and rebirth, that fascism is the rebirth after the defeat of Caporetto. And it's this kind of almost like resurrection. There's a kind of Christian interpretation that you could put on this of, of kind of sacrificial death and resurrection. And that's what the fascists want to do. But then after fascism, you can't really use that anymore. So it becomes a bit more tricky. What do you do with that memory, right? Surely your work must is bringing scholarly attention to this experience. Um, well, or how do you see that, it? How do you see it? I suggest it? that people read my work. Um, it's a very we, flashing we did, we did mention the uh, recently released uh, Oxford book uh, in the intro. We, yeah, so uh, everyone we'll put a link out. to it. It's available to Oxford, on Amazon now. Right. Okay. Right. So Italians initially, I, I found, were very surprised to find that there was an English person working on Italy in the First World War it's seen as something which has not been worthy of attention for, for scholars internationally. This next problem is that what has happened in this country is that there's been a, a tradition of studying it from a variety of perspectives that aren't really military history. So I would say the field of history of war in the, in the most general sense is pretty healthy. There's been, uh, certainly from the 1980s onwards, an enormous amount of work done on Italian society at war, Italian women at war, industrial mobilization, uh, cultural mobilization, the experience of the war, war literature. I'm sorry, the cat is whizzing around in the background like a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> I can hear his um, little feet. Yeah. yeah, he's thundering around. Okay, that's no, fine. I thought it was an insect. Sometimes he brings in lizards or whatever, and I was just checking it wasn't something that he was eating. Um, Again, a cat. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Italian scholarship um, on many many aspects of the First World War that are not kind of strictly military. And part of the reason for that is that the Italian military archives are an absolute nightmare to get into. So there's tends to have been even more than in some other countries, a huge divide between a very small group of people who write operational military history and the official histories and who work with or for the Army Historical Office and everybody else who basically can hardly ever get in there, can hardly access the documents and works on other sources. And it's really hard to do operational military history if you can't get into the military archives. So is that yeah. intentional on their part then to try the official to try to stay away? This is our stuff. I mean, I think it's, I think there's certainly some people in the army historical office who didn't mind that it had that effect, but a huge part of it is just funding. They, okay. They're absolutely tiny. They have five desks. Oh, wow. Okay. So they, no grand conspiracy, just and just they, lack they of close wherewithal. they close at 1.30. Oh. So when you book in, you get a day, but actually you get from 8:30 a.m. until 1.30. And that's I thought it. that was Spain. There's no sleeping huh. in then, right? I mean, you've got to be there at 8. Oh no. Yeah. If you're there <laughs> wow. at 8.45, it's too late to order up to order up any papers for the day. Well, oh, wow. So, what was your um, learning curve then? How, how was oh your my learning God. curve? Well, it, that was a shock to the system. And if you've come from abroad, they don't really care. Tough, you know. It's also really hard to get into in that sense because it's inside um, a, a, some military installation. If you're not an Italian citizen, you have to have a letter from the military attache of your embassy to be allowed access. So there's all these kind of bureaucratic obstacles as well because you're not even allowed into the site if you don't have the right paperwork. So 
that was a steep learning curve. Wow. Um, and I, I, when you go in there, you have to just photograph everything and get the hell out of there, right? That's crazy. Oh, you can, okay. You can photograph. Then you least. can photograph. At least you can okay. photograph or photocopy. In my day, it was photocopy when I did my PhD. You can photograph. But that's not really how I like to work. I'd much rather actually read the documents, take my time with them, figure out. You want to go back and forth through the papers. What am I doing here? Oh, wait. And, you know, just sort of scanning lots of things. And then you get home and you've got 5,000 photographs on your computer and you think oh my god yep. what am i doing you know i hate kind of my my normal existence yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yep. i know that's how right. most people have to work but it's not know, ideal it's not ideal wow and it's really interesting because as an american working in german archives i go in and the germans are like oh what can i do to help you um you know uh, very very friendly full access to everything but then i have friends who work in austria and they say that it gets much more difficult in Austria, that it's very disorganized um, and just they're, they're very, they're not nearly as friendly and willing to help. And now it sounds like you get down to Italy and it becomes a problem of we're really understaffed and, you know, we really don't have that much time to help you. And yeah. so you're, it's kind of every man for himself. When you're in there, the staff are great. The staff are really, really nice and they'll do whatever they can for you. But some of the papers haven't been sorted. Sometimes some of the inventories are really old and they haven't got the time or money or people to do new inventories. Digitization is a kind of vague pipe dream somewhere in the future. <laughs> um, you know, so they'll help you when you tell them what you're working on and they might find you some stuff that you would have never found on your own. But equally, you order something up and it turns out to contain 53 copies of the same newspaper. I'm not joking, that happened once. And it's one of your precious five boxes that you're allowed that day. And you're like, what the hell am I doing? You know, so it's, it's hard. And I think this is definitely connected to the fact that in Italy, so many people working, I think on both world wars, actually are doing other types of work. Yeah. are doing social history, political history. I mean, there's a huge interest in um, political history, but in the largest sense in Italy, you know, party politics, individual people's political and ideological positions, the kind of intellectual side of political history, rather than just like who's in government, but right down to the sort of nitty gritty granular levels, you get lots of stuff on different left-wing parties, interpretations of the war and so on but still only one big book on such and such a battle because it's so hard to do. So when, when I think of Italy in the first world war, um, I, I'm not just saying this to flatter you. I think of you, I think of you as being kind of the person. Um, if I had a question, I would send you an email, but you really are. I mean, you have established yourself as, as really, you know, one of the world's leading experts on the Italian army during the first world war. And, um, you know, I tell, you know, you should accept compliments. <laughs> um, I'm not denying it. I'm just putting faces, yeah. but your and, listeners and can't see the faces. So they it's can't okay. see it. Yeah. Um, as, uh, as, uh, Stuart said yesterday, um, he's been told that he has a, a face for radio and, <laughs> but, um, so, and you're an independent scholar. I I'd like to talk about that because, um, you know, you're, you're the first independent scholar that we've had on, um, and I think a lot of us, I mean, to be completely honest, if we go to a conference and we're looking at who's there, you see somebody's name and it says independent scholar, you're like, oh, um, we see your name and everybody knows who you are. And then it says independent scholar. How, is, how has that worked? I mean, I, I, I gather from our earlier conversations about what your husband does that it has a lot to do with the, you know, the realities of, of life and, and having to move around. But, um, you know, tell us 
how that works for you? It certainly wasn't a plan, let's put it that way. And yeah, I mean, the first time I went to a conference and saw someone was an independent scholar. I was like, what even is that? You know? Yeah. So uh, I, um, as I said, I wanted to stay in Italy and I started teaching at John Cabot University in Rome, which is a fully accredited American four-year liberal arts college. And there's a lot of study abroad in Italy, American study abroad. Most of it is little programs, either that are attached to a home campus in the US or that are independent where people come for one or two semesters. Um, But what I liked about doing Cabot is it's a regular university. So people do come from abroad, but they also take their full degree there. So the difference in teaching there versus a regular study abroad only program is that you get to know the students, you teach them over a number of semesters, you see them through the full sort of um i can't think of the english word the full path of their degree right right um it's small but it's a, it's a liberal arts college so i started teaching there in 2008 and i also started teaching for the rome campus of trinity college uh the connecticut one um so they have a they've had a campus in rome since 1972 i think like 50 years it's a long old time anyway so i started teaching there as well um and I periodically applied for jobs in the UK. I think I was always a bit torn. On the one hand, I wanted a proper, like, secure position and career and all of the things that go with that. Um, on the other hand, I wanted to live in Rome and there were not any permanent positions going anywhere in Rome. Um, so I did apply and I had some interviews in the UK and I, I, I don't know if I was ever fully committed and then of course I was starting doing this in like 2008 2009 so that was not a great time to be starting not that there's any great time in the last 15 years for the job market but 2008 2009 was especially not a great time to be doing that um so I stayed and I was happy doing it and there's a couple of differences about being an adjunct here than in the USA and number one is socialized healthcare. Oh, yeah. It's very different being an adjunct when you live in a country that has a social security safety net, right? Yeah. Um, and where the fact that, for example, you don't get health insurance isn't a thing. Um, and secondly, I think adjuncts in Europe are often a little bit better paid than adjuncts in the US. Okay. That said, yeah. I was still teaching like five, five, one, four, four, two, whatever. You know, it was that's a football formation. Anyway, I was still teaching between <laughs> 10 and 12 courses a year. Um, every year from 2008 to 2018, I taught the history and politics of the European Union at least twice. And I think I should get a special prize for that, frankly. <laughs> so, you know, it was adjuncting. The other good thing about this, though, uh, about being at John Cabot was that they do have a small amount of research funds, even for adjuncts. And I know that most adjuncts in the USA oh, yeah. do not get research. Yeah, funds. I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, right. no, that's we, we don't really have we're tenured professors. And we yeah, don't we don't really even have research. research funds. Funds. <laughs> um, at, at JCU, I could apply for up to fifteen hundred euros a year for specific things. So there was yeah. research funds. That's something. Yeah. 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 There's research funds. There were fun students that I really enjoyed teaching. Um, Americans, Italians, people from all over the world, really great international students that were really fun and stimulating to teach. Freedom to come up with fun classes. So I teach history of sports, uh, history and popular memory, video games, you know, freedom to do interesting stuff in the classroom. And it kind of worked and it worked well enough that I, the fact that I didn't get a proper job was okay. 
but you know there comes a point in life where being permanently precarious is not great and my husband and I basically had a deal that whoever got the proper job first the other person would follow them and do what needed to be so in 2017 I actually had an interview this is probably going to be the peak of my career 2017 I had an interview for an associate professorship at Oxford that was nice that was the closest I ever came to the real thing and I didn't get it obviously because I'm here now Um, and then instead my husband got the equally unlikely full-time permanent job in journalism and pretty much the job of his dreams but based in Paris and he said let's go to Paris and I said okay so since then I did some teaching in Paris. I taught for NYU. I taught for some study abroad programs. That was fun. COVID came along. Study abroad does not thrive in a global pandemic, it turns right. out. So, <laughs> then I thought, well, if the students can't come, that also means that professors can't come and researchers can't come. And so I advertised on Twitter that I would do research assistantship for people and go into archives. I earned a living like that for over 12 months. And then we've moved back to Milan and I'm sort of still doing some more of that and picking up the pieces and starting again, basically. So I mean this in the, um, this is a real compliment. I just want to make sure that the way we use it in the United States is, uh, is the same way there. When I look at where you've been and what you've done, you are a hustler. Like you, you land somewhere and you're like, all right, I'm going to figure out something to do here. And I mean, that that's pretty impressive. I mean, everywhere that you've gone, you've, you've landed on your feet. Yeah. I mean, I would say there's two sides. One is that I want to acknowledge I've been super lucky, you know, being in Europe is sometimes, well, being in a country where there is some kind of healthcare and, and safety net makes that easier. I'm lucky with my partner. I'm lucky with my networks, you know, after spending a decade at Oxford, I have a lot of connections and Adrian Gregory, my old supervisor has always looked out for me and and put me in touch with people. I've met a lot of people through the International Society for First World War Studies. I went to my first conference was their second ever conference. And I've been to the majority of their conferences ever since and met a lot of people and made good friends, but also good professional connections. Um, so having a network of people that I could contact and say, oh, how about this? What about that? Has been really important. Yeah. So shout, shout out to them because that organization uh, it really does a, a good job of people take care of each other. Yeah, it's it's a very collegial world. I see a lot of horror stories from academia about people being backstabbing and mean and undermining. And we really don't see that in at least our little corner of it. it it's not like that. So I feel very, very lucky in a lot of structural ways. But I'm not going to lie, it was rough at times. Um, the lack of security, the fact that you, you, know, you, you do all the work that you're doing as an adjunct, very long hours, lots of courses, constant course prep, all that stuff. And then you think, oh, now I've got to try and find some time and energy to do the research. You yeah. know, it's hard. Um, it worked partly because I lived in Rome and my archives were in Rome. You know, I was 20 minutes away on the bus from my main archive that I did most of my research for the last book. That sort of thing. I, I couldn't have done it if my archives had been in another country. Um, I also came up with a backup plan. After a number of years of applying for proper jobs and not getting them and being kind of a bit depressed about it, I thought, well, if I come to a point when I think I can't do this anymore, it's it's just too draining and demoralizing, what will I do? So I looked around at what I could do. I came up with a plan for an alternate career. I thought if I want to walk away from this completely and start again and have a totally new career, what would I do? Once I'd come up with a backup plan, I felt much better about staying as an adjunct and living with being precarious because I thought 
I know that I have got an alternative and I'll see if I want to stick it out or not. What is the backup plan? Uh, the backup plan is to, um, <laughs> you're probably gonna laugh. The backup plan is to become a dressmaker. I, okay, so I, I, you know, I've got, uh, I mentioned that in there and I was, uh, I was gonna, you know, talk a little bit about that. Do you wanna take a break before we get into other stuff, Bill? Let me, can I, let me ask one more real quick question and then we can take a little break because it's related. Uh, Fonda, we, we talked with Megan Kate Nelson uh, and her, her episode just dropped actually not, not too, too long ago, I think last week. A similar situation, you know, experience that she decided to leave academe, just totally leave it, right? You're, you're not totally there yet, but she just totally left it and just became a writer and, and just does, you know, live, lives that way. But she also has a partner who's employed. And, but one of the interesting things that we discussed with her and, and you're kind of alluding to it a little bit is, is you, you go into this expecting to have this certain identity and then that identity changes. And, and at some point, like in Megan's case, she, she just let it go and created a new identity for herself that she just, and it's really hard for academics to break away from, you know, this is who you're supposed to be, right? This is our expectation. So how, how are you dealing with yeah. that? Or what's your expectation with that? Well, the thing is that I know that I'm a historian and I may or may not be an employed academic, but I am a historian. That's the way my brain works. It's how I see the world. It's how I think. In a funny way, I have the confirmation that all those yeah. years of adjuncting, I didn't have to write or research. They didn't care. I mean, they liked that I did. If I published something, they were pleased. The dean said, oh, well done. That's nice. Fundamentally, they couldn't have cared less, right? So why was I doing it? I certainly wasn't making any money off of it. I was doing it because <laughs> it was my calling, right? right. That's who I am. Um, after I had my daughter, I had this awful brain fog for months, which other women may have mentioned to you. And it took a long time for my brain to come back on. But I knew I was a historian when the first thought that my brain actually properly produced when I started to work again was, I wonder what the histories are of mothering and of the first six months of your child's life. I want to read about this. I want to, I'm thinking about re like research ideas started right. to come to my head. And then I thought, actually, I'm, I'm a historian. That's what I am. So it's not about a job title or secure employment. I mean, I'm going back to teach at John Cabot again in the summer, which I'm very excited about. But wherever I teach or don't teach, wherever I'm employed or not employed, that's still going to be who I am and what I do. And I might make money off it or not. Mostly not seems to be the trend. But anyway, <laughs> um, but uh, that's the identity thing. But it's hard and it took a long time to get there because... You still get people on Twitter going, oh, well, if you're employed by a university, then you're a scholar. And if you're not, then you're not. And right. I'm sure Gosh. they don't mean it, you know, yeah. but people say this stuff and you internalize it. And, you know, you, you see all your colleagues getting promoted and you're delighted for them, but you think, wow, <laughs> here I yeah. am. Um, you don't have the, the trappings of it uh, or the status of it. And you're very kind to say you see my name on the conference program and you know who I am, but you know, people don't necessarily know who you are. And they're like, who is this totally random person? If you can say, Oh, I'm associate professor of the university of blah. They're like, Oh, right. It, it, that credential does kind of matter in our world, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. Well, um, well, so yeah, it, it's the thing that you just have to, I think everyone was, who goes down this slightly odd path has to figure out for themselves. So what yeah. worked for me is not necessarily what's going to work for someone else. And I can tell you, um, I think Bill will agree. I, I'm an associate professor. Bill's a full professor, so he knows more about this than me. Um, with your record, you would unquestionably be a full professor at our university. 
Yeah. Unqu easy. Oh, yeah. Unquestionably. Easy. Yeah. I mean, you got no, a book with Cambridge, a book with Oxford, you're, yeah. you're a full professor. Um, so, so uh, I am doc. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you. So if you're interested in moving to uh, Statesboro, Georgia. <laughs> Is there a lot of sport there? <laughs> uh, American mm. football. Um, we have a we have a mediocre American football team at the university. Okay. Um, in the state of Georgia, we have the world champion Atlanta Braves uh, baseball. There's a good um, MLS team in Atlanta. University of Georgia just won the uh, the collegiate uh, football national championship. I've got a feeling. So one of my brothers is massively into American sport. I've got a feeling that that Georgia or that the Atlanta Braves are one of the people that he hates. So I don't know. This is going to work. Okay. All right. Well, there's plenty on offer. There's plenty on offer. Yeah. Let's take a break real quick. Take a quick one. Bruno is a big gamely dog, though. He's like, yeah, he's, he's got, he's he's got just like, I mean, he's got like a lope. I mean, he's just yeah. big gangly. Oh, yeah. Just like my dog. And he looks like he looks like his face looks like he should be on the Prussian general staff in like yeah. 1892 or something. He's, he's got these big chops, you know. Can you get like a little mini pickle house? Yeah, right. Yeah, he's half Doberman, half poodle. Oh, and so, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a really interesting um, mix of, of dogs. Cute dog, so, uh, yeah. yeah. Franz, I'll have to send you the photo. Franziska Heimberger, who is an amazing knitter, had a book of replica First World War knitting patterns. And she knitted me oh. a baby bonnet, which was a replica of the um, kind of under-helmet warmers that they used in the French army. Oh, wow. So it's like a, it's like a, it's got a sort of a chin strap. Yeah. And you put it under because obviously a steel helmet in the winter has got to be pretty, yeah, pretty cold, cold and uncomfortable, yeah. right? So they have these knitted warmers, and this is a, a pattern that was published in one of the French newspapers, so that you know your wife or mother at home could knit you a helmet warmer. Yeah. <laughs> so she made this for my baby when she was born, um, and Anna didn't like it very much. I don't know why, uh, but I've got a great photo of Byron wearing a First World War helmet warmer, so I'll send you that. <laughs> You've had a. Uh... I, I believe some experience uh, working with documentaries, uh, things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your experience with writing scripts, doing stuff with TV, that sort of thing? Um, yeah, I can. It was a surreal and strange experience. Um, if you get a chance to do it, I don't totally recommend it, but I would say expectations should be of it being a very weird experience. Um, it kind of happened by chance the way everything does. My career is this kind of mad sort of bumble along in the dark where you never know what's happening next. Um, a colleague at JCU said to me, oh, um, someone's, I know, I met this guy who's doing a documentary about the First World War. Would you be interested in being interviewed? They'll pay you 500 euros in cash. And I said, yes, of course I'm interested. <laughs> let, let me out of them. So I went around and they interviewed me um, and we did this sort of on-screen segment um and then afterwards the production team took me out for lunch and over a glass of wine the the director said well what do you think about the script that you've seen and the way that we're going and fortified by my glass of wine and my 500 euros in cash I went well to be honest I don't think much of it um it's really full of cliche it's stereotyped it's completely ignorant of all the most recent scholarship 
Uh, it's sort of harping on these really weird issues that are not the main part of the story. And I think you could do a lot better. Right, Brian, <laughs> sounds like Jim Wilbanks with Kim Burns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I really don't think about much what you're doing with Vietnam. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tried not to be so rude, but, you know, he said, no, no, tell me, tell me. So I, I did. Um, and then the next day he phoned me and he said, um, would you like to come and uh, write the script? We've sacked our script writer. So I was really mortified. I said, like, oh, my God, am I just imagining this poor man who I've just lost him his job, right? His wife left him the next day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh um he said no no don't worry we'll put him to write something else he's never written anything about history before and I was like oh that was why it was no good so um so yeah I spoke to a, a family friend who said ask for more money so I asked for more money and then I came and signed on and Basically, they uh, it's a, a very much a commercial enterprise. It's a production company that churns out a lot of documentaries, and they'd managed to sell this one to uh, ZDF, the um, oh. German TV people, right? Very, very big German. Uh, very TV big people. German. Yeah. Right. So he sat me down. He said, "Look, here's the thing. ZDF wanted to be historically accurate." He kind of said this in a very doubtful voice. I went, "Okay." He went. What they want is in the, the written version of the script, they want to somehow see where all of the information is coming from. And I went, okay. He said, do you think you can do that? And I went, yeah, that, that's called footnotes. I think I can handle that. He went, oh, okay, right. Well, I can see you're the right person for the job. So like, okay, wow, that's where we are, right? So the series was, a, was called Cost of War, The Cost of War. It's about the economics of war. I do not do economic history. This is literally the last thing I would ever spontaneously choose, right? All my courses when I teach, I'm always apologizing to my students for like, there's no economic history. I don't do it. I don't understand it. Money confuses me. Okay, fine, whatever. We can do this. Um, my assumptions based on the idea that we were trying to produce something that was of good quality which is what they were saying they wanted to do and their expectations based on trying to produce some entertaining television were often at odds um, but more than that what they thought about the process of research was fascinating to me because he'd say oh let's get this statistic and just have the same statistic for all the different countries you know how many tanks were produced in 1917 give me the figures for all these different countries then when we did the second World War episode, he was like, I want you to tell me what was the cost, the financial cost of D-Day? How much did it cost? I was like, well, what do you mean how much did D-Day cost? Like, I can't tell you that. He was like, well, what's the number? There must be a number somewhere. I was like, well, why would that? Like, the idea that someone had worked that out, that somewhere yeah. in, a, in a paper, someone had said total spent on D-Day. This is like, this is not a thing that exists. So are you going to go and pay someone to do years of research to try and figure out how that might even be calculated? All that stuff. Then the fact that the Soviet Union didn't have the same kind of figures as the US and he couldn't compare side by side. He wanted to put numbers on the screen and say, Soviets spent this and the US spent that. And again, it's not really how it works. So I think they found me a bit frustrating because I couldn't just pull these numbers out of thin air. And I found this kind of frustrating and a bit weird because I there was so much just like foundational assumptions of what history is that we didn't seem to be on the same page about <laughs> um 
And they wanted everything to be exciting and to have lots of explosions on screen, but also to somehow be scholarly because that's what ZDF wanted. That so explosion very... cost $15,000. <laughs> right. Like, okay. And then the cost of war, they pitched this as something that was going to not just be about the numbers, but also the human, social, environmental, all the other costs of war. And that it was going to be a truly global history. But a one-hour TV slot is 48 minutes of running time, okay? So you're going to do a 48-minute show, which is truly global, on the entire cost, economic, human, social, environmental, etc., of the Second World War. I mean, good luck with that. So, yeah, it was, um, ooh, a cup of tea. Thank you so much. Oh, there he is. There he is. Service with a smile. There's, there's sports, sports guy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> going to Monza, stuff like that. Yeah, we know. Yeah, and and <laughs> waiting on me and bringing me cups of tea. Hey, it's lovely. We like it. Um. So yeah, it was it was very interesting. Um. I learned a lot. Like I learned how a script looks and how you have to think about what the voiceover guy is reading versus what your talking heads are saying. How to edit the talking head clips. How to interview people so that you get the right kind of clip. You interview your experts and they are historians. So they give you this answer, which goes on for an hour. Yeah. Giving you now, and which kind of meanders around and is hedged with doubts. And of course we must also think, well, and you're like, I've got like a 20 second slot for you to give me one little punchy, pithy remark and you just can't and won't do it. So try to work with that material and then think about sound where are we putting in crazy sound effects, where we've got maybe some archive clip of de Gaulle giving a speech or whatever that we can put in, learning how to write a script that would fit all of these elements together. Um, how many on-screen graphics are we gonna do? Are they distracting? Are they too many? Are they not enough? All that stuff. It was, it was a very steep learning curve for me as well. Um, it, it was interesting. I learned a lot about um, the economics of 20th century warfare. Um, and it's a lot about working in this really big team of people, none of whom really knew anything about what the other people were doing, right? So they didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't understand what they were doing. The sound guy is off doing sound guy things and it somehow has to all fit together. Um, it was fun. It was a bit stressful. It was kind of weird. Um, the finished product is... I think quite a good commercial documentary. It's not like a scholarly high-end piece of work and yeah. there will be errors in that. They rarely are. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, some people, some people, especially fellow academics go, ah, oh, you worked on a documentary and they think you've produced some kind of scholarly masterpiece. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, this is the History Channel kind of commercial piece of work, right? Um, but no, I'm, I'm, it's quite, I think it's okay for what it is. But what a neat experience. I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. And now I find out when it's come out in a new country around the world, when lots of creepy men message me on social media in random languages. So it's come out in most Latin American countries and um, it's recently come out. I'm not quite sure where, but somewhere in, uh, in either India or Bangladesh. And the reason I know is that people message me and they say, oh, I saw you on this documentary and I decided to write you. Uh, oh, did you? Okay. <laughs> um, one guy even messaged to say, I decided it would be not too creepy to contact you. I was like, you decided wrongly. <laughs> um, so, yeah. 
great. You know, it's acceptable if you say, hey, I just read your book and I have a question about whatever, whatever. But yeah, I saw you on this documentary and wanted to, to reach out as a little. Uh, that's yeah, really I saw great. you on this documentary and, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to know, are you married? Oh, yeah. Well, now yeah. I'm torn if we should put a link to the documentary on the description page, Brian. Uh, yeah. I mean, let's, I, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's maybe not. Protective. Yeah, yeah maybe I guess not. we shouldn't. Wow. Well, <laughs> Hey, I, I know it's getting late where you are. Uh, I was going to ask you some more about A.S. Roma and the original script here, but um, I, I think we've we've gotten, you know. We, we don't want to talk about that. That's well, it's a bit depressing. So but point. very quickly, um, you know, <laughs> how so you mentioned, you know, I knew that you uh, you were a sewer, a sewist. Um, how did how did you get into that? And uh, I mean, if you said that's a backup plan, then you're pretty good at it. I am. I'm pretty good at it. Um how did I get into it? I, I guess I learned as a teenager. Um, I was one of those teenagers who wants to be different. And I used to go and buy 1970s curtains from charity shops like Goodwill um, and cut them up and make them into skirts and dresses and stuff. Right? Um, uh, so I kind of learned, taught myself. Um, and then I ended up with a, a sort of adopted mom, a kind of not family, but family type person who was an expert seamstress and she taught me a lot. Um, and it was just a thing I loved doing and gradually I, I sort of dedicated more and more attention to it. Um, when I got married, I made my own wedding dress. I designed it and made it myself. Um, I calculated that it was pretty much the same amount of work from start to finish as a journal article. Uh, that's, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, um, my wife was, took... I was going to say my wife took her mother's dress and her grandmother's dress and took pieces from each and she didn't do it. Her grandmother did it. But um, even just doing that, like there was some serious time involved. Yeah, it's time. That's really creative as well. That's nice. It's time. It's brain power. Um, someone once said making clothes is like gift wrapping the world's most awkwardly shaped gift. So if you think about that, like the human body is a weird shape, right? Well, I, I have a visual. Yeah. Like trying but... to work. There's a lot of engineering, right? You've got a flat yeah. thing and you've got to make it into a 3D shape and you've got to figure out how it's going to go and also hopefully look nice. Um, so there's a lot of brain power. There's quite a bit of maths. Um, so, yeah, it's more of an intellectual process than I think it has sometimes been given. Do you find it as something that you completely can completely like just focus on that and shut everything else out? Yeah, right. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's a very relaxing yeah. hobby because when you're in the zone, you can only think about that thing. You right. can't be also thinking about like oh that committee meeting or grading or whatever. You're focused on the thing. Um, so now I sew a lot for my daughter as well. I make her Elsa dresses and stuff. And what? Uh, just out of curiosity, and you can just say that's none of your business. It's my child. What? What language is she speaking primarily? Um, she switches between the three quite happily. Okay. So oh. once again, you're giving her a completely a horrible childhood. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, this afternoon she did say, mommy, my friend, uh, I can't remember the friend's name. She said, my friend speaks Arabic. I said, yes. Hmm. I was like, you can learn Arabic, but maybe give it a year or two. I mean, great as a research assistant. If she could read Arabic, then she can read Libyan sources from Italian occupied Libya. That'd be really grand. So that's the goal. Yeah, you gotta gotta have a plan. One of one of the saddest things uh, that I've dealt with is um, my oldest daughter was completely fluent in German, 
And when we came back to the US, like I would see her in her room and she would be speaking German to herself. And so I was like, she, you know, this is really like her, you know, she speaks German. And um, once she was old enough to figure out that people looked at her strange, strangely when she did it, she just stopped doing it. And so uh, she has still has passive German, but uh, it was suddenly uncool to speak yeah. German. And so I really have to, uh, to, to work to get her to do it anymore. But, um, yeah, that's that's really sad, but it does happen. I mean, I went through a phase as a teenager when I didn't want to speak Italian either. I think the key thing is if you've got friends or at least someone else to do it with, right? Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard. And kids, though. kids are kids, right? Right now, I'm sure that I, I, I would I suspect that, that she doesn't want to speak Italian or speak German to her dad. I don't no, think she I don't, doesn't. I don't, she doesn't yeah. want to do anything with her dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly. She's 14, uh, being a dad of a 14 He's going through this tough phase. Is, He's going uh, through this tough phase. It's tough. It's tough. I've still got my 11-year-old. She still loves me. Um, the other one will come back around, though. I, I know it's... Uh, it's just time. Yeah. I can't, yep. I'm not looking forward to that bit. Yep. I'm honestly not. Um, uh, well, Bill, you want to uh, lead yeah. us into rapid yeah, let's fire? Do, let's do a little, little rapid fire. Uh, uh, Vonda, I don't know if you're if you aware, but we do these 10 questions. Um and we got we got to change the name, Brian. I mean, God was Stuart yesterday. I it mean, was like it was an hour. rapid fire. It was like molasses <laughs> forever. But but we had a great chat. It was awesome. Yeah. But, but it was not this doom doom. You know, right? No. We, it's more like a kind envisioned. of medieval <laughs> weaponry, yeah. slowly but, but, but reloading. Enjoyable. But enjoyable. But enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, and we part call of the it running is, the gauntlet. Yeah. Part part of the problem is is that Brian and I we, we want to comment on all your responses, so that kind of you know feed, feeds it in a little bit. Uh, so we're going to ask you 10 yes. questions. Brian will ask a couple. I'll ask a couple and uh, do the best you can. And we will judge you at the end. Is it, is it a quiz? Do I get a grade? No. No, I, we, we'll, no. <laughs> we'll just let you, let you find out. <laughs> okay. Best work of history you've read recently. Oh God. Um, and she's not in a room where she has books all over. I know she doesn't have a bookshelf. To yeah. Look at. No, this yeah. is going to be hard. Um, yeah, no, it's hard. Um, the, the, the books are in the office where my husband is hammering his keyboard violently due, through, due to the Coppa Italia. Um, okay, something I read just for pleasure recently that I really liked was um, Female Husbands, a trans history by a scholar called Jen, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Manion, Manion I'm not sure how we say it, um, which is a history of women who... Uh, lived as men through the 19th, 18th, 19th centuries in Britain and the US. It's really interesting. Weird. And it's a great example of how to think about sources, because all we can tell is that these women lived as men, but it can be very hard to know what they thought about that and how they saw themselves. So it's really interesting about reading sources very carefully and what we can and what we can't do with them. Okay. All right. Um, how about fiction? What's the best uh, fiction or non-history you've read recently? Um, I haven't read anything new recently. I've been rereading. I'm a okay. great rereader. Reread. Give, give me a yeah. Give us. Um, just I've been rereading uh, Dorothy L. Sayers. Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. Good stuff. Comfort reads. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. What are you? What are you guys binge watching? Um. Come on, brain. What have we watched recently? Ah, we've been watching um, uh, Call My Agent, Dis Poisson, which is the French uh, Netflix. Is it Netflix? I think it's Netflix series. I think it is. Uh, which is so funny and 
much better about living in Paris than a lot of programs about what it's like to actually live in Paris. Um, and that's a huge amount of fun. And then uh, on my own on Amazon, I'm watching uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, which I think is kind of old, but I'm really enjoying it. Cool. Have you uh, got have you gotten into The Witcher at all on Netflix? Haven't, but it looks really fun. But this it's, is the kind yeah. of thing I have to watch on my own. My husband won't watch that with me, so I have to like carve out some time. And I asked that because I know you're a gamer, and that came out of a game, right? right? Witcher, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I watched it. I watched both seasons. I really like it so far. It looks it looks really really fun. So I think that like when there's I don't know some major sporting event which is on in the evening a lot, I'm gonna sit down and and have a bash at that. Six Nations is going on. You can, right? <laughs> forever, right? Right, forever. Which is a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, what's your latest music download? What are you listening to music-wise? <sighs> the radio. We listen to BBC Radio 6 Music, which is a great digital radio station that you can get from anywhere. If you have not listened to it, you should definitely listen to it. Um, Iggy Pop has the just the best show. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, you should definitely listen. And um, Craig Charles's Funk and Soul show, also on the same channel. But basically, Six Music is our kind of default go-to music. Okay. All right. I think I know the answer to this. Um, maybe you'll surprise me. Paris or Rome? Oh, Rome. I know. I thought that's what Obviously. you were going to say. Yeah. Paris is, is, you know, better in all the sort of official ways. Like, there isn't heaps of trash in the street and sinkholes don't open outside your child's nursery. And the bus doesn't burst into flames when you're on the way to work. And all of those things, right? Minor um, irritations. But wow. Rome is home and you can't do anything about that. Yeah. Okay. Even the ugly bits. I even love the ugly bits. And that's when you know you've got it bad, right? Yeah. All right. You got you got three options on this next one. World War One, First World War, or Great War. First World War. Okay. And the reason I asked is because you use two different titles for the books. You've got First World War and Great War. Yes. Um, and I know that a lot of that comes down to what the publisher wants it to be. Uh, yes. Well, firstly, with my, I mean, I, I think of it usually as the First World War, but I think Great War is fine for kind of slightly literary, that sounds really pretentious, but in a slightly <laughs> literary way. Um, whereas World War One is fine if you're American, which I'm not. I was, I, I'd originally had a vague idea about doing a kind of play on words about like great, the greater Italy in the Great War or something, and it didn't kind of come off, but I got the Great War in my mind then, so I stuck in it. Just go with what's on the victory medals. Great war for civilization. <laughs> yes. No? Well, well, pretend, uh, they talk about pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> they called it the the European war for a lot of the time as well. But of right. course, that's explicitly not what I was writing about in my book. So I couldn't call it that. Okay. Who's less popular right now? Boris Johnson or Joe Biden? <laughs> oh, it's, it's kind I mean, of a day-to-day -day thing. In the past few days, I know what my answer would be. But let Put it this way. Um, one of them has at least a modicum of human dignity. And the other one is Boris Johnson. Um, you know, you, uh, I don't think that, that however unpopular he makes himself, Joe Biden doesn't come across as someone who fundamentally only cares about himself and doesn't actually give a shit about any other living being. I, I agree. I, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, I acknowledge that Joe Biden is tremendously unpopular in polls right now in the United States, but I still don't look at him and say, 
oh, I don't like that guy. I just say he hasn't quite figured out how to. Uh, how to I mean, Boris Johnson, I wouldn't let him in the house. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is where we get serious. Ronaldo or Messi? <sighs> ah, good. We finally got her. Good. They're both really annoying. Yeah. Super True. annoying. One has better um, hair, but, you know. Just in, in football terms, that's one thing. Uh, in football terms, it has to be messy. In personality terms, I'm going to say Ronaldo is blatantly an arrogant, annoying dick. But I think Messi is worse in a way because he's kind of sneaky. I think he actually is probably just as annoying and bad as Ronaldo, but he kind of pretends he's not. So I maybe would go with the kind of openly infuriating and slappable rather than the like sneaky. That's, hey, that's fair. Um, I, so slappable. I mean, honestly, the most slappable face in football, right? I am writing that down because, Brian, I think I can work that into a department meeting at some yeah. point. Yeah, <laughs> Someone is infuriating that. and slappable. I, I, that's, I like that. Thank you, Fonda, very much. <laughs> I, yes. Oh, God. Well, I'm, I'm gambling that neither of them listens to your podcast yet. So, you know, they're not going to be personally offended, right? Okay, so... Um, I've been to Italy, but I have not, I've only been to Northern Italy. So if I, as an American, uh, show up in Milan, where are you taking me to eat? Rome. <laughs> that, that may be the best answer anyone has ever given us. Because right. it was, <laughs> that's awesome. All right. We're going to leave it there. You, you don't need to yeah, no, that's tell good. me anything. That's, fine. that's good. We keep that's it there. Fine. Okay. Yep. yep. Um, what is your greatest personal baking accomplishment? Baking accomplishment. Ooh, interesting. And I saw on Twitter the mincemeat pie that you had going fairly recently, mm. right? I, well, thing I'm most proud of, there's an amazing pistachio and rose water cake. Um, and it's this extraordinary thing. I couldn't afford to make it here, but in 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 uh, in Paris, you can get like ground almonds and ground pistachios and rose water and stuff a lot more cheaply because you've got all these amazing North African and Middle Eastern shops. And um, it's the kind of cake that in this country would cost me like 30 euros just to buy the ingredients, but it's really delicious. And it has candied rose petals on the top. So we went and we got a rose and you you individually candy them with like sugar and egg white and you bake them in the oven at the very very low temperature and they go this beautiful purple red color it's this really elaborate thing so yeah i'm gonna go with that so so if you were on the great british bake-off that would be your would that be your thing um i'd give it a try it doesn't yeah. but i'm not into i don't do the like amazing decoration i see yeah right but, like but i'm still working on that yeah okay bonus question if, if brian will, will will allow which i'm sure he will absolutely great british bake-off who do you prefer? The I like, um, and I'm gonna I'm mess I'm gonna miss half the names. I don't watch it. You don't watch sorry, it? Okay. Watch well then, then scratch. It's British telly. I, I don't scratch. even know if I can get it here. Yeah. They have it you on watch the Australian version, right? It's on Netflix. I watch MasterChef. Now Master yeah, MasterChef. Australian MasterChef yeah, is amazing. I love okay. it. They make the best food. It's like on a level of sophistication that is way out there. 
I've seen a bit of the American, the British, the Italian. None of them can hold a candle to the Australians. They're just doing the most amazing things. And they're so nice. They're revoltingly nice. There's no like cutthroat competition trying to sabotage each other, being mean, making snide remarks. They just all love each other. And they're really supportive and kind. Basically, what I want is a kind of historian's version of MasterChef. So you have three amazing experts in their field, 20 odd kind of up and coming historians. And you go somewhere and you do practical historying every day and you get feedback and you work together. And sometimes you do collaborative stuff and sometimes you do individual stuff and you get constant feedback and you learn from one another. And it, it's just like this amazing professional experience. I want that. Can I, we do that? Well, you're yeah, connected we that. with that world. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> you got an inside Talk. track. Talk to the, you know, you know how to write a script. Get, get, yeah. You could pitch it. You could pitch it. That sounds brilliant, actually. I love it. Yeah. Sounds like a great idea. Now, I was going to ask you if you preferred like Sue Perkins and can't remember her name compared to Noel and the, the other two. They're like the, the comic, the comedic relief you know, okay. for, for the show. And I thought Sue Perkins and what's her name were, were much better. I like Sue Perkins. Um, I like Sue Mel. Perkins a lot. Mel yeah. is the Mel. Other yes, Mel. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I like Mel and Sue, but I haven't yeah. seen them for a long time. I haven't yeah. lived in England for more than 15 years so. it's on netflix they've got they've got oh, all it? the okay. season on netflix yeah okay. yeah it's our guilty thing because they release it like in november and so we we let the episodes stack up because they drop one one a week and then over thanksgiving you know we that week we, we okay. binge watch it all and stuff so um oh you mean like you mean like rupaul yeah Okay, I thought you meant like drag racing. Like no, 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 Hey, um, <laughs> it has been really, really great to talk to you. Um, and I know it's late for you. Um, so, uh, you know, thank you so much for, uh, thank for you. chatting with this us. This has been lots of fun. Yeah, Vonda, it's lovely uh, to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. You, this I feel fun. like you've, you've wrinkled all my secrets out of me now, so. That's well, good, what we're good. getting at. That's what we're we getting better do. at. And, and yeah. hey, we we appreciate your you know honesty and be and being up. Yeah, your candor. Absolutely. I mean, so uh, you. you know you've got a you've got a great story. My yeah, pleasure. Thanks Thank so you. much. Yeah. Good luck with everything. Right. Thank you. That was that was everything I uh, I thought it would be. Um, uh, you know, she's got such a great personality, and and uh, she's one of those people that every conference where I've ever seen her, she just you know handles herself so well. And um, you know, she's got a great story. I'm really glad that she was willing to to sit down and talk to us. Wow, uh, that was fun. I appreciated her candor and, and her enthusiasm and and just great stories and. And just her experience, and I, and I, and I, I you know, Brian, it's probably that having moved around, lived in those cities, having to get around in, you know, a second language, you know, in those places. I mean, you know, that forces you to grow. That forces you yeah. out of out of whatever comfort zone you think you have. I mean, I don't care how how comfortable you you gotta you gotta get out there. And, yeah, and she's. Uh, um, yeah, and, and 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 I think and I love her, you know her husband's a sports journalist and, and uh, all of his experiences and everything. So between the two of them, I mean, what a you know. I know. I want to go to dinner kid, with. I, I don't want to go to dinner with, with the both. I know. Of them and just and, and, you know, 
yeah. and don't you want them to be your parents? Like, I mean, their, their right. daughter is exactly. going to have the yeah. best childhood ever. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> and, and addition to, you know, good cookies. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that was fun. That was really yeah. fun. Uh, well, look, everybody keep, keep listening. We appreciate everyone's support and uh, please retweet, uh, repost, whatever you do on whatever social platforms you're on to share uh, the podcast. Uh, we, we appreciate it greatly. That's how we get the word out and, and your support means a ton to us. So thanks for that. Absolutely. See you guys next time. Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not B.J. Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.